Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. I'm the host, Scott. Today's episode is called Religion or Myth? What is religion? What does that word mean on its own, without any context of Mormonism or whatever religion we want to be thinking about? What is religion? Oftentimes we get caught up in the dogma of what a religion should be or what it shouldn't be. But at its core, what is religion? Religion is is far more encompassing than just um, a set of beliefs. When we think about religion in general, oftentimes we focus only on a set of dogma or, or beliefs or worldviews. That doesn't encapsulate the whole concept of religion. Religion is a social or cultural system. It encompasses morals, beliefs, worldview, sanctified places, prophecies, ethics, organizations, behaviors. So now that we've placed what a religion is in its context, that it can mean a lot of different things, but it's more encompassing than just the dogma. When we think about a religion such as Mormonism, oftentimes we only focus on the practices and beliefs. But the culture and the way Mormons interact with each other is part of Mormonism. Before I jump in, I want you to think for a moment and try and distinguish what is the distinction between mythology and religion. Is there any? What might it be? When I think of mythology, the things that come to my mind are the Egyptian Greek, Roman, and Norse pantheons. When the word of mythology comes up, that's what comes to my mind, typically. But when we talk about religion, the Judeo-Christian concepts come to my mind. But what at their core is the difference between those two lists that I just mentioned? The myths or the religions? Now, I named this episode Religion or Myth because oftentimes the difference between the two is arbitrary. Now to illuminate this, I want to read a quote by Joseph Campbell from the book The Hero with a Thousand Faces. After I say this quote, I'll describe what that book is about a little bit and describe why that book to me was very impactful. And from there... I think that will jumpstart our discussion of religion or myth. Now, in the book Hero with a Thousand Faces, Joseph Campbell defines mythology and religion in a very interesting way. He says, My definition of mythology is other people's religion, which suggests that ours must be something else. My definition of religion, then, is 
misunderstood mythology. And the misunderstanding consists in mistaking the symbols for the reference. So all the historic events that are so important to us in our tradition should not be important to us in any way except as symbols of power within ourselves. Now there's more I want to say about that quote, but I want to give a little bit of background on who Joseph Campbell was and a very interesting experience I had the two times that I've read this book. There are very few books that I've read twice. One of them is The Hero with a Thousand Faces and another one, (laughs) completely off topic, but I have read the entire Wheel of Time series all the way through twice. I happen to be a a nerd and I, I love reading. That aside, let's jump into who Joseph Campbell was and why why his perspective is unique on this particular subject. Joseph John Campbell was born in 1904, and he died in 1987. He was an American professor of literature. His field of focus was comparative mythology and comparative religion. And and as, as I just said in the quote, he defines both mythology and religion as the same thing. Religion is just misunderstood mythology. The scope of what he talked about in his essays and interviews and all of the books that he wrote is every aspect of human life. When I was in college, one of my English professors recommended that I read A Hero with a Thousand Faces, the book that that quote came from. Now, this book is a fascinating read. It is where Joseph Joseph Campbell talks at length about what he calls the monomyth. If you're not familiar with that, a more familiar term might be the hero's journey. In the first half of the book, he talks about the archetypal hero and all of the steps that a hero goes through in his journey in all of mythologies. He lays it out step by step in a very very fascinating way, taking bits and pieces of mythology from all across the globe and weaving them into one cohesive tale. He is influenced by Carl Jung and some of Jungian uh, philosophies. I'm not going to jump too far into that, but the, the concept of Jung that he followed is called the collective unconscious. And to to summarize that concept very quickly, um, Jung hypothesized that there's this, this ancestral memory within all of us that is linked to experiences that are common to all of humankind. And it's it's distinct from an individual's unconsciousness. What Jung means by this when he talks about the collective unconscious is he talks about different experiences and ideas that are part of everybody's unconscious. Now, Joseph Campbell took that idea, that concept that everybody has this same ancestral memories of experiences and ideas, and he applied that to mythology. He made the argument that every myth story tells the same story or has the same elements in it. In The Hero with a Thousand Faces, 
He links Christianity with Buddhism, with the Hindu beliefs, with Taoism, with Native American beliefs. He's taking concepts and ideas from every culture around the globe and illustrating how they all have commonalities. And he called this this whole tale of a myth the monomyth. Famously, George Lucas credited Joseph Campbell's work as inspiring the Star Wars saga. Why bring up the hero with a thousand faces and comparative mythology to understand religion better? Joseph Campbell has another couple of quotes that I want to touch on from his book, A Hero with a Thousand Faces, to to better illuminate why I think this approach is very valuable for a believer or a non-believer. I had an interesting experience reading this book. As I said, I read it twice. The first time I read it, I was a college student. And when I read it, it was a powerful, moving spiritual experience. It was an affirmation of everything that I believed as a Mormon. The concept of the monomyth at the time, to me, was a testimony of the light of Christ and the influence of Christ on all cultures across the globe. At the time, I read it through the lens of Mormonism. We've talked about lenses. We talked about Immanuel Kant, which, by the way, I uh, apparently I misspoke when I when I talked about Kant before. He was born in 1724, not 1924. Just to correct myself from a previous episode, there was a, a listener that uh, messaged me and, <laughs> and pointed out that I had misspoken. The first time that I read this book, I read it through the lens of Mormonism, and I saw the book as a testament of the validity of the church and of the love of God for everyone, that he would inspire them in their myths to be similar to and teach similar values that we find in Christianity. Campbell broke up the hero's journey into three distinct portions. The first part was the departure. The second part was initiation. And the third part was the return. And in each of these parts, there are a number of different sections. The way he writes the book is he goes through each of these departure, initiation, and return, and then all of the bullet points within and he quotes different mythologies and different stories to illustrate what he's trying to say and to tell a cohesive narrative through all of these mythological stories. The second time I read this book was nearly a decade later. When I read it the second time, I went into it looking for a way to make religion work. I had deconstructed my belief in just about everything, to the point where I consider myself agnostic atheist. I'm just not sure that there is any higher power, or if she does exist, what she or they or he would look like. But I desperately needed to make it work. I was trying to hold on to belief for my wife and my family, so I picked up the hero with a thousand faces, with the intent that this would revitalize my belief in religion because it was so moving to me before. 
this second time that I came to the book, Hero with a Thousand Faces, a key change had happened in the way that I looked at my own religion, my own mythology, where I no longer viewed it as historical. And that, that one change opened up a world of meaning. And to illustrate that, I'm going to do another, I'm going to read another quote from Joseph Campbell. It says, wherever the poetry of myth is interpreted as biography, history, or science, it is killed. The living images become only remote facts of a distant time or sky. Furthermore, it is never difficult to demonstrate that as science and history, mythology is absurd. When a civilization begins to reinterpret its mythology in this way, the life goes out of it. Temples become museums, and the link between the two perspectives is dissolved. Such a blight certainly descended on the Bible and on a great part of the Christian cult. I came back to the book, and my perspective had shifted from literal history to mythology, about my own religion. And that one difference illuminated so much about it, where instead of seeing these commonalities between belief systems as representative of a belief in Christ across the globe, I saw them as representative of a single humanity telling the same stories, teaching about the same things that are important to them across generations and across time. Now, Joseph Campbell continues in, this, continues in this quote, and I think it is very important. He says, to bring the images back to life, one has to seek not interesting applications to modern affairs, but illuminating hints from the inspired past. When these are found, vast areas of half-dead iconography disclose again their permanently human meaning. I want to dispel the idea that religion is something different than mythology. In everyday practice, the way we define religion is our own set of beliefs, and mythology is everyone else's beliefs. He finishes off this, this tidbit, this section that I'm quoting from, with this poignant phrase. Mythology, in other words, is psychology misread as biography, history, and cosmology. When we read these stories and interpret their cosmologies, the creation myths, and we read them as a literal explanation of how the world was made, we miss the point of what the stories are trying to tell us. This different understanding of what religion is should be understood by both believers and non-believers. Wherever you land on that belief spectrum, you will benefit from looking at religion in this way. Because when you study these myth stories and interpret them and understand them in their context and for what they are, then the meaning of the stories will be unlocked to you. All that being said, the second time I read this book, 
I came away from it with a very different understanding of what religion was. I found value in the scriptures and in the teachings, not for them being literal stories, but I read them through a different lens. I read them through a different light. I tried to understand what the authors were saying. I tried to see what messages were being told through these stories, not just the myths that are in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, but also the myths that are told about church history. I'll get into that in a little bit here, but I listened to these stories and I tried to understand what were they doing rhetorically and why they were being taught. And as a non-believing member of the church, I still found value in attending and studying. I even wanted to participate in some of the ordinances and the rituals in the church. One of the questions that this is a story for perhaps another day, but when I decided that I would no longer attend the church, my bishop asked me why I wanted to participate if I didn't believe. And this concept that we've been talking about today was the answer that I gave him. For me, I found so much more value in these stories when I looked at them as mythology. Now I want to talk a little bit about ritual and some of the values that we can gain from religion when we don't look at these concepts literally. Let me illustrate one of the changes that happens when you understand religion in these terms of mythology. In many religions, there are rituals that are performed. And I'll talk about this in the Mormon context. We have baby blessings. We have sacrament meetings where we partake of the sacrament. We have baptisms. We have marriages. We have the temple endowment. The Mormon religion is full of ritual. But to this podcaster's opinion, much of the value of it is lost because it is looked at as such a literal thing. I'll take the example of a baby blessing and talk about another way perhaps to understand what a baby blessing could mean. When we look at the ritual of naming a baby and presenting it in your church and understand it as less of an ordinance that will save the baby's eternal soul, but more of a way to introduce an addition to your family, to your culture, or your group, or your people. The point, if you look at it from more of a spiritual, less literal aspect, the value of it is that you are presenting this child and saying, this baby is mine, it is part of my family to your family and your friends and all of those around you. I don't want to give the impression that I'm okay with every ritual and every decision that the church makes. I'm just trying to reframe some of these concepts in a way that has more deep, inherent spiritual value. When I was no longer a believing member, I actually enjoyed these rituals far more than I did as a believer because I looked at them so differently. The next one I'll talk about is baptism. The way religion often dogmatizes baptism 
it leaves out and de-emphasizes the most powerful part of it. Baptism was often used in literature and, and mythology as a death and rebirth. We talk about this in Mormonism. Baptism is a death and rebirth. Baptism should be a death of the old person and a birth of a new creature. It's not something for children. It's something for a repentant adult to do when they've made a a decision to make a change in their life. You can look at this and understand this concept of baptism, this death and rebirth symbol, in so many aspects of your life. You can take that to the sacrament and a practice of the sacrament as as a new death and a new birth each time. If we look at baptism as this death and rebirth, instead of a ritual moment where it happens just once. I've gone through this this experience many times. One of the first ones was on my mission when the young adult version of me died and I dedicated myself to the Mormon church. Years later, it happened again. I struggled with suicidal ideation for a long time and I'll tell that story at some point in the future, but the day I decided not to kill myself, part of me died. Ironic, when I made that decision, this depressed husk of a man that I had become died, and I became a new creature trying to find happiness in the world. Another death and rebirth happened when I deconstructed religion. Those old perspectives died, and I changed, and I was reborn as a new creature with different understandings of the world. This reminds me of the lyrics of a song. I have listened to the band Death Cab for Cutie since I was about 15 years old. They have a song from their album Narrow Stairs from 2008 called You Can Do Better Than Me. One of the reasons I've really liked the band Death Cab for Cutie is the lyrics are so poetic and my favorite songs that they sing can also be enjoyed just by reading the lyrics. Here are a couple of lines of that song that I was reminded of. It says, my old clothes don't fit like they once did. So they hang like ghosts of the people I've been. As I'm talking about these baptisms or these deaths and rebirths throughout my life, I'm reminded of this song, this lyric, that that these older versions of myself are like ghosts. And interestingly, the people that have known me throughout my life, and the same goes for everyone here, if someone knew you when you were in high school, They only know and they only remember that ghost of who you were at the time and not the person that you are today. Now, in my mind, these baptisms, if you will, that I went through, none of them were the ritual that you have in Mormonism of a baptism, but they had more value, more meaning for me. In my mind, the ritual of baptism is very important and very special. And honestly, I think it gets bastardized when the church baptizes little children. 
Because the real meaning, the real symbol in the act is lost. And the value of it is not something a child can comprehend. I could go on and discuss some of the other rituals in the church, but I think that will suffice for now. Many of the people that I've interacted with in the post-Mormon and ex-Mormon communities, they've left religion altogether. But to my mind, they've given up on some of the best aspects of religion. Even as a non-believing person, you can take these concepts and these lessons and these mythologies and gain inherent value from them. The phrase gets put out, the throw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't want to give the impression that everyone is going to have the same spiritual journey. But you can decide for yourself what that life looks like for you on the other side. Oftentimes, atheists can be just as dogmatic as Christians or religious people. This is also seen in the scientific community too. People get so connected to their worldview that they're incapable of seeing anything else. I'm slowly shifting into a different dialogue and I don't want to go down this road too far. But I just want to say that it's healthy for every single one of us to keep in mind that we could be grossly wrong about so many things in our lives. And taking that small step of humility and recognizing that you could be wrong leaves you open to learn something that you might have been closed off to before. I'm going to cite just one example of where this happened in the scientific community because I think it's very cool. There was a cartographer and oceanographer named Marie Tharp. She was born in 1920. She died in 2006. This woman, after studying the geology of the ocean floor, she came up with a map, a topography that showed these rift valleys and this mid-Atlantic ridge and came up with the idea of plate tectonics and continental drift. This concept that she came up with in in partnership with a guy named uh, Bruce Heason. It was scorned and disregarded by the scientific community. At the time, they believed that, um, that the dinosaurs had gotten from South America to Africa through these long land bridges. And they, they completely disregarded her idea. But, as it turns out, Marie Tharp was, was right. I bring this up not to say that every single aspect of this of science is wrong. Oftentimes when a new concept or a new idea comes out, it only slightly alters what we already know. But when we get so stuck in the dogma and the ideas that we hold as truth, it makes us unable to see where there are flaws in our logic or there are flaws in the things that we think we know. All of us that have left the Mormon religion or have deconstructed Christianity have had a tremendously humbling experience. For 30 years of my life, I believed so firmly in one thing. And I taught that thing. That thing, Mormonism, influenced every aspect of my life. 
And then I learned that it was wrong. And it is a terribly humbling experience. And from then on, I've, I've never hold on, I've never held on to facts quite the same way, with quite the same fervor that I used to. Anyway, I have <laughs> I've gone off on a tangent for a bit longer than I intended. I apologize. Let's jump back to the subject. We're talking about the difference between myth and religion. And at its core, the only difference is religion is something that you believe in, but it's still a myth and a set of mythological stories and ideas. Many people, upon learning that the history of the church is grossly exaggerated, get very offended. And I was right there too. Almost every story that I was taught as a child in the Mormon church did not happen the way I was taught. That was a very hard thing to reconcile. It came to a point as I kept studying that every story that I thought of or that was brought up in church as I was still attending, my immediate thought was, it probably didn't happen like that. And then I'd go and I'd look it up and assuredly it didn't. I want to reframe these lies and exaggerations as something else. And I hope this helps for both a believer and a non-believer. Church history is mythology. That is the only way to look at it. Early church history is mythology. Now these myth stories are created in such a way to bind the group together and to have these shared stories and shared ideals. One of the benefits of mythology in any culture is is it's a way to teach the things that are important to the young members of the community and to reinforce the ideals that the community values. Now these mythological stories about church history do just that. As one example, when the story about Joseph Smith getting surgery on his leg is brought up in church, it's often touted that he refused alcohol for the surgery. Now, we all know that that didn't happen the way it's told. But what is that story doing when a young child is listening to it? It reinforces the idea that we should abstain from alcohol. It teaches the children of the church that refraining from alcohol is something that Joseph Smith did. And he was, he was blessed because of it. When we divorce these stories from history and understand them as mythology, which is what they are, we can finally understand them for what they are meant to do and what they are meant to convey. The same thing happens with history of every nation. When we look at American history, the stories we're taught in school are not historical. They're mythologies built to engender patriotism. We don't learn about all the negative aspects of the Founding Fathers. That doesn't create patriotic citizens. And this, this is why you have pushback in society now, saying we demand to know the truth about the American, about the Founding Fathers. We want to know about the slaves and how they treated them. You have these, these people pushing back because we now recognize that 
all of these stories, all of these mythologies we've been taught in so many different aspects of our life are not true. But they did have a purpose. And they did what they were intended to do for a long time. I'm not going to tell you whether these mythologies about church history are right or wrong. That is for the listener to decide. I've come to my conclusion, and you can come to yours. I think many of these mythologies still have valid things to teach, but we need to recognize them for what they really are. I have more that I want to say on the nature of religion. (laughs) I had a whole second half of this that I didn't quite get to yet. That I'll have to save for next time. I hope that today has reshaped the way you look at religion, whether you're a believer or a non-believer. When we look at the Bible or any of these stories and understand them from a literal lens, they lose the power of symbolism and they lose the ability to really teach us in transcendental ways. Wherever you land on the belief spectrum from the most devout member of the church, to the most dogmatic atheist. Understanding the power of myth and the hand that it's played in the society and culture of humanity from the beginning of recorded history, we lose some of the stories that bind us together as people. Now, I'm going to make a counter-argument to what I just said. Because while I find value in a lot of the myth stories that I was raised with, I think that the way we tell stories today is through movies and TV shows. We recognize that these are not literal stories or real things that happened, but they reinforce to us the values of our culture and the things that are important to society. So perhaps if a day comes where religion is no longer part of humanity, perhaps mythology will live on in the stories that we teach. At their core, to me, I see no difference between an excellent story that teaches me how to be a better person and an excellent myth that illuminates the mysteries of humanity. No matter where you find yourself on the belief spectrum, you can decide what parts of scripture resonate with you and what teachings are impactful to you. You can decide which parts of Mormonism work for you and which parts don't. To boil it down to a basic level, there are things about Mormonism that I still practice today. I try and serve my fellow man. I don't kill people. (laughs) I say that facetiously. My wife and I are on a list in our ward. The bishop and the leadership in the ward know that that I don't believe and don't plan on attending anymore. And suddenly we found ourselves on a list of, of people that the ward needed to focus on. One of the counselors in the bishopric reached out to my wife and asked her if she and I would like to do some service for our ward. My wife got the details, told the counselor she would run it by me before she said yes or no. And when she came to me, she asked me if I wanted to do it. And she was surprised when I said yes. Now this service project was working at the food bank and preparing meals for people in need. And my wife, when she asked me about it, she says, why did you say yes? You're going to be surrounded by Mormons. 
I replied to her with two things. I said, I said, first, I used to be a Mormon, so I think I can tolerate them fairly well. And the second thing I said was that service, especially to those in need, is valuable. And while I think service to the church is unnecessary in many aspects, I found this project to be very valuable because we were working with our community to make it a better place. I learned about service and loving my neighbor while I was Mormon. And that aspect of me, I don't plan on eschewing or getting rid of. And I recognize the influence the church and its mythology had on teaching me about being a good neighbor. The only difference between religion and mythology is religion is the mythology that you believe in. And when we study and understand religion as mythology and not as literal history, we can finally see it for what it really is. I haven't plugged myself in a minute, so I just want to say, if you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe to it. If this is content that you enjoy, share it with your friends and make sure to write reviews of it in the various podcasting platforms that you use. That's the best way for a new podcast to get out to more people. I have a Facebook page, Ramiumptum Ruminations. I typically post twice a week, once discussing briefly what I plan on talking about, and the second one with a link to the episode where when it goes live. I engage with my listeners there. Bill Reel has been putting these on YouTube, and I have been trying to respond to many of the comments there. If I don't get back to you, the, the best way to reach out to me is through Facebook. That is something that I check about once a day. Thank you for listening today. I hope that you have an excellent day.